Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, picking up where we left off in our study of Galatians, primarily on Sunday evenings. Of course, as we come to the text, we should always know who Paul is speaking to and what he's been saying. Paul has been speaking to his churches, churches he started in south-central Asia Minor, the region of Galatia. And he's speaking to churches that are in risk of apostatizing from Christianity, from the gospel, the religion that Paul had preached to them and taught them. And they're, they're not, however, apostatizing in a way in which they've gotten irreligious or not been as serious as they ought to have been. They've not grown nominal or lukewarm, but in a more subtle and troubling way, they have become in some ways more religious and fallen under the false teaching of the Judaizers. False teachers that tell them they need to keep all the Old Testament ceremonial laws, those laws connected to the the temple and the cleanliness laws and circumcision. If you want to be right with God, you've got to do those hardcore, old-timey things. And for the first four chapters, Paul's been making his argument or arguments. He starts out the book arguing for his own valid apostolicity, that he is a, a real apostle of the Lord Jesus. Then he argues for the validity of his gospel as it's been approved by the apostles. And then he moves into a more theological argument, and then an argument from the Old Testament Scriptures. So coming to the end of chapter 3, he begins to argue from the gospel implications for the truth of the gospel he's been proclaiming. And then just before our passage, as it comes to the middle to the end of chapter 4, he, he's getting personal again, calling to mind his ministry to them the first time he came to them, the personal loyalties he's been pushing them on. And to come to the end of chapter 4, he's, he's really pushing them to a point of decision. He's putting things as clearly for them as he can, on one hand and then the other. So let's pick up our reading as Paul argues for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that doctrine by which the church stands or falls, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who, of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. My Uber driver last weekend in Chicago, as he picked me up from Midway Airport, his name was Muhammad. He was a Muslim born in the Palestinian quarter of Jerusalem. And we had a great conversation. And again and again, I I would ask him in different ways if, if he was afraid of the judgment that he would come to before God. And then again, again, he would say, no, he's not afraid. He's not afraid. And he would repeat that all you have to do is to try to be perfect. Just try to be perfect, and everything will be okay at the judgment. And then I would push him some more. I would say, but, but, Muhammad, God is just. Surely, how does your trying to be perfect outweigh the, the sins, the bad things you've done? And that didn't faze him either. He would say, yes, again, God, of course, yes, he would say, must be just, but you just have to try to be perfect. And I found myself wanting to say, wishing I had said, something along the lines of what Paul says here to the Galatian Judaizers in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to what the law says? Muhammad, were you not listening to yourself? He knew perfection was the standard. He knew he wasn't perfect. And yet he wasn't worried about his trying to match up. He lived under the law willingly, much like the Judaizers of the Galatian churches did. As we've said before, these Galatian Christians wanted to live under the way of the law. They loved that clarity, that that do's and don'ts, the yeses and no's. They loved the old-timey ways. But in doing so, they perhaps unwittingly were adding to what Christ had done for them. They're adding their law-keeping, their good works to Christ's perfect righteousness. And of course, you too, and I too, inevitably do the same thing. This is the, this is the, the way that it comes naturally. We want to earn our way before our teachers and coaches and parents to be liked to be right with them, justified before them. We have to behave right and do right and do your homework right and, and everything will be right with them, justified. But Paul is stopping them and us and Muhammad and everyone else in verse 21 saying, do you not listen to the law of which you are quoting? And of course the law as he says it here is not perhaps even so much the Ten Commandments as the Torah, the the first five books of the Old Testament including the narrative portions from which he pulls the story of Hagar and Sarah. And as he does, John Stott gives us a a commentator, famous English commentator, gives us a a helpful outline of the passage that we'll follow together. He says, first Paul makes an historical appeal. It's in verses 22 and 23, an historical appeal. And he builds off that an allegorical, or I'll say a symbolic appeal, verses 24 and 25. And then He moves to a more personal or a spiritual appeal in verses 26 to 31. 
building the his, historical appeal, an allegorical appeal, and a spiritual appeal. He's, he's driving them to a fork in the road, a place where they must decide who they are. Are they in the line of Ishmael or are they in the line of Isaac? And I hope we understand together as we come through it why that would have a, such an effect on them and why it ought to have an effect on us. So look at verse 22a with me. For it is written, Paul says, that Abraham had two sons. Now, of course, saying to the Judaizers that Abraham had two sons is, is like saying the grass is green and the sky is blue and that uh, George Washington was the first American president. Yes, everyone knows it. We have holidays for the $1 bill. George Washington were, were George Washington people. Of course, the ancient Judaizers here in Galatia knew that they were sons of Abraham, that Abraham had two sons, and further they knew they were sons of Isaac, sons of the good ones, sons of the one who inherited the promise. Um, being sons of Abraham was a big deal to these ancient Jews and Judaizers. If you remember, it's John the Baptist, the wild-eyed last of the Old Testament prophets, wearing his camel hair and eating the locusts that preaches to the Jews in his day, saying, Matthew 3.9, you say of yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, but I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And further, carrying on this tradition of appealing to their paternity, Jesus in John 8 tells them flat out, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, but you are of your father the devil." Of course, they pick up stones to stone Jesus when he says this. And making this appeal, joining this tradition of, of pointing to their paternity, uh, Paul joins a, a hallowed crowd of John the Baptist and Jesus, and he, he, he puts a slight twist on it here, though. He's not so much uh, challenging their paternity as their maternity, who their mother is, whether it's Hagar or Sarah. Verse 22b it says they had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And here John Stott helpfully points out that there's a, a real historical episode, happening story that Paul is making an appeal to. It's, this isn't made up. He's not treating it as if it didn't exist. He's not treating it as, as if it was simply figurative or allegorical, as we'll see. No, he starts this real Old Testament story. He treats it as, as totally true. And not only does he, he treat it as something historical, but he, he points this historical story and brings to it, you might say, an official Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation. His interpretation is there in verse 23 when he says that the son of the slave woman is born according to the flesh. And of course, if you know the story, of course she was. The drama of the Abraham story is that he had a name of Avram, father of many, but even until he was basically 100 years old, he was the father of none. And he was supposed to be God's blessed, God's chosen, uh, the one to carry forth the promise of, of God into all the world, bless all the nations of the earth, and he was old and had no children. He lived a life of disappointed, frustrated, wait, uh, waiting and wondering if God's promises would be true or not. And so you can imagine his, his dear wife, Sarah, whose name means princess, wondering about her own 
standing or position in this royal family of God that was going to start a dynasty and kings would come from them, um, something wrong with her. And so as we go through the story of Abraham, we come to chapter 16, where Sarah suggests um, the most ordinary of things for them. Uh, it's what all their neighbors were doing. Everyone else who, who needed an heir but couldn't have children the most normal way, all their neighbors had done it, Kim Kardashian and Priyanka Chopra, all kinds of other people were using surrogates. And so she suggests her own young, fertile, maidservant from Egypt, Hagar. But in suggesting, you see, what seemed natural, practical, and common, Sarah and Abraham were rejecting what God was doing, which was supernatural, impractical, and special. God creating life in the womb. See, in trying to bring about the promises of God, really the salvation of God by their own ideas, their own problem solving, their own ingenuity, their own hard work and effort, they were bringing it to pass based upon law, based upon their own fleshly insights. They were going to bring God's promises to bear. They were going to help God out to have a son according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit. And the implication here is what Paul's been arguing all throughout to the Galatians. It's just as Abraham and Sarah looked to their own effort, their own performance to bring about God's promises, so do you. So do I. We seek to bring about God's salvation, His justification, His promise based upon your own performance, your use of the law as a ladder to climb up to God based upon our, our piety or our morality or being a, a generally good person, to commend myself unto God. And in doing so, as Paul will press in, even as we study the next cha chapter here in chapter 5 this evening, you reject Christ as Savior. It's as if we have all fallen into a pit of sin. We know we're in need of salvation. We need, know we need to get out. And Christ himself has come down, and he's offering to save us, but we're telling Jesus, no, no, no. I, I can handle it. I, I, can climb, I can climb out of here myself. Such is the effort of living according to law, living according to the flesh. See, it is this law that speaks, this symbolism of, of this historical story that Paul builds the allegorical appeal. He has this historical appeal, the story of Hagar and Sarah, and he, he begins to build off this in symbolic ways. Look with me at verse 24a. It says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, if any, any Bible college student or seminary student who has been in a, a hermeneutics course studying you know, how you rightly interpret the Bible, this is a, a famously uh, important and perhaps difficult text. Um, I, I, for one, don't think Paul is showing us a how-to of interpreting the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, there is a bit of tradition in the ancient, especially in medieval churches, of, of interpreting the Scriptures allegorically, famously or infamously, St. Augustine and his, uh, his preaching of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says that uh, the innkeeper is the Pope, and the two coins represent the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And, you know, I'm sure Augustine was on to something true and good and helpful, and yet uh, that, that kind of exegesis is rather arbitrary. And uh, you, you might be wondering, is Paul going, you know, mad detective here on his bulletin board, making connections with the string uh, uh, of what is connected here in the Scriptures? There's something illegitimate to his allegorical interpretation, of course. Of 
course, no. We might more helpfully think of it as, as gathering a thought cloud, uh, thematic elements that are connected and symbolized by the, the pictures he puts up before us. There's a, a thematic continuity Paul is drawing us towards, saying there were two mothers, two sons, and two ways in which they were brought about. He's going to show us a correspondence to a larger biblical thematic movement. Look at verse 24. These may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. I think the most natural and helpful explanation of these two covenants um, is that general covenant of works set up in the garden by which Adam and Eve fall, and the covenant of grace that's even mentioned within Genesis 3, that there is these, from the very beginning, two parallel works, two thematic continuities. He connects this further to one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. And this makes sense within the context of Galatians, because Paul has been arguing what happens at Sinai when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments. This receiving of the Ten Commandments, the law has been perverted, twisted. The Jews have made the law a way unto God. There is a thematic connection here of a covenant of works and what happened on Sinai and what the Judaizers are doing in Hagar. He's showing this, this continuity. And Hagar here, um, this, would, this would put a an odd feeling in their mouths. Look at verse 25. He says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That is, um, Arabia, if, if the Jews were anybody, they were not the Arabians, who they thought of as being descendants of Hagar, and those who were but nomadic peoples, unsophisticated, ungodly, pagans. They were not those people. Like, like most Georgians think of Floridians. We are not Floridians, if anyone, you know. Where I'm from, everybody's just, they're down in the south there. But no, we are not Floridians. So that when he comes to verse 25, and he says to them that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that hurts. You know, if you're, if you're listening, uh, and you know that you're not an Arabian, you're not one of them, and you're pointing to us, and Paul is pointing his finger right between their eyes, Jerusalem, which symbolizes Judaism and the Judaizers, slaves in the line of Hagar. They couldn't stand that. Of course, Jerusalem, representative of the religion, the way that Mecca represents Islam or Salt Lake City, Mormonism, or um, Lawrenceville, Georgia, and the PCA. He, in so many ways, is doubling and tripling down here. He's, he's saying to them, in the slavery of your doing this, and trying for perfection, in your law-keeping legalism, you correspond to Hagar, Ishmael, the lostness of Judaism, and slavery. Now, this doesn't have the emotional appeal for us, perhaps, as it would on Paul's original hearers. But he's using this appeal to drive a fork in the road, to push them from this historical appeal to this allegorical symbolism. And then, really, the knife edge of the blade is where he takes it next in this spiritual appeal, our, our, our third point. Now, now, anytime I have an evangelistic conversation, which is not nearly often enough as it should be, I walk away, of course, wishing or thinking of all the things I wish I had said. And I wish I would have told Muhammad, my Muslim Uber driver in Chicago, 
Something like what, like what Paul says in verses 26 and 27 here. Look what he says. It says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, having set up the, the binary between Hagar and Sarah and beginning to explain the spiritual, free, heavenly correspondence, the way of Sarah, he calls up here what is you know, perhaps old and odd to us, this quotation from Isaiah 54, but would have been you know, emotionally stirring to these ancient Judaizers. Because these words are the words that Isaiah gave to the exiles. The exiles who um, had... Uh, had much higher thoughts of who they were as people, God's people than what they were experiencing in exile. They had become synonymous with the barren woman, the woman who was under a curse, who couldn't bear, with all the fertility, all the frustrations, all the promises of God that we were supposed to be fertile and have children and be blessed. We're not. And Isaiah coming to them in exile and promising them that the roles would be reversed, that there would be a great irony and a great movement of God in history. And of course here, Paul is not applying this to Jewish exiles in Babylon, but to Christian exiles in Galatia. Uh, quoting these words, I think, is perhaps something like the, the thing that stirred up. Perhaps every time you hear the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, um, where we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That's something, you know, I believe as an American. You know, uh, it's, we, uh, we all hold to that. Or perhaps even in Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, as he appeals to Amos 5, and he calls for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So there's something powerful and catching in that quotation because it, it's a representation of, of our hopes, of all that would come to pass. The reversal of the roles of Israel contained in the symbolism of the infertile mother. Picking up on the Bible's themes of Sarah, Rebecca, Manoah's wife, Hannah, that things would be reversed. And this, this grand reversal, Paul we might more broadly connect to, and what he does connect to is the very theme of grace. Even in our reading this morning from Luke 13, when Jesus says that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, it's an appeal to the turning upside down of the world. All our lives thinking we need to be right before God by our works. I need to earn his favor. The grand reversal is that no, the barren woman will bear by the grace of God. It's not who you think that is blessed, in other words. It's not necessarily the young and beautiful, fertile, seemingly happy, married with 2.5 kids living in the big house, driving the big white pearlized Escalade. No, the truth is that the most ordinary, humble, single lady serving the Lord day in and day out in the mission field is the blessed one. It's not the strict law-keeping Pharisee, but rather it's the tax collector who beats his breast saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not the, the older brother who does all the things right, hangs in there with his father, and uh, ends up being self-righteous. No, it's the younger brother, the prodigal that goes and squanders and makes a mess of everything, that's the one who's blessed and accepted by God, the one who comes back in humility. This is the thing about grace. It's in some ways radically inclusive. It's for everyone, and especially for, we might say, the nobodies, the forgottens, the barons. Abraham, after all, is just another moon worshiper. 
Gideon is the least in all his tribe and the least in all his clan, the least in all his family. David is but the runt of the litter. Paul explains, 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that Paul points then to Sarah and Isaac and the principle of grace, and then he points to you in verse 28 and 29. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. He, he's picking up on that story in Genesis 21 when Isaac is finally born and he's his mother's son and uh, he's weaned and they're having a party. And Ishmael, Itzak's Isaac, or he laughs. I don't know fully what that word means in that sense, but he laughs somehow at Isaac. He persecutes Isaac. And he, Paul is making this connection between there. He's on that thought, thematic thought cloud. What happened then, the persecution of Ishmael to Isaac happens today between the Judaizers and the Christians. In verse 30, he brings them back. But what does the Scripture, what does the law say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. This is uh, that famous point in that Genesis 21 story where Sarah is so upset that Ishmael has itzaked Isaac that she tells Abraham she must throw out Hagar. That is, basically sentence her to death. Throw her out into the wilderness. Her son will not inherit with my son. It's a rather shocking and uh, uh, disturbing thing to read in the context of the story. It's rather ugly for Sarah to demand Hagar be sent to death. In Genesis 21.11, something fascinating happens. Abraham is struck by it. It says in 21.11 of Genesis, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He loved Isaac. He loved his son. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, the gospel, grace, the way of promise is radically inclusive to whoever would believe, and yet it is also at the same radically exclusive. There is a line drawn down the middle. Jesus in Luke 13 showed us as we read it this morning, repent or perish. Live according to your own works. Live according to the way of Hagar and Ishmael and slavery and the Jerusalem on earth. Or live according to grace. Look to him by faith alone and Christ alone. Don't try to add to Christ's works. Look to Christ alone for righteousness, for salvation, for all the inheritances of promises of God to come to pass. Verse 31, he puts it to them. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Ishmael was the child of man's effort, ingenuity, work, flesh, piety, religiosity. This is a bondage to the law, Paul has been arguing. He sets it over against faith alone and grace alone, in Christ alone, not based upon your merit, not your resume, not your doing good, not your dressing up and looking the part, but based on faith alone. 
We go back to Paul's opening line in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to live under the law, do you not listen to the law? The law says the children of works are Hagar's and Ishmael's, and they do not inherit with the children of promise who come by the Spirit and by faith like Isaac. In so doing, Paul sets up a kind of Joshua challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day who you are child of Ishmael, or a child of Isaac, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, make us sons of Isaac. Make us alive by the Spirit, by faith, so that we might live lives of humility and grace, trust in you and in you alone. Father, we thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.